Hey, good morning. Welcome to Connect Church. Those of you in the room, those of you joining us online, I am very glad that you're here with us. Now, when I was 17 years old, I first started going to church, became a Christian, and I got to tell you, I knew absolutely nothing about the Bible, like nothing at all. I thought the book of Numbers had math in it, so I didn't bother reading that book because I didn't like math in school, figured I wouldn't like it in church either. I thought the book of Job was about how to get employed. I thought that when you read the book of Psalms, you were supposed to pronounce the P at the beginning of the word. So forever, I called it Psalms, and nobody told me that's not how you said it because they thought it was kind of funny, you know what I mean? The first time I ever came across the book of Daniel, I was like, oh, how cool is it that everybody gets their own book in the Bible, like addressed directly to them? I figured there was probably also a book of Amber and a book of Lakeisha in there somewhere. You know what I mean? It was just like, wow, that's so cool. I knew absolutely nothing about this scripture at all. So one Wednesday night, I'm at youth group. And my friend comes rushing up to me. He's got a Bible in his hand. He's got a very distraught look on his face. And he says, Daniel, I am so upset. And I'm like, why, what's going on? And he said, I found something in the Bible and I don't know what to do with it. It's really bothering me. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, like you have grown up in church. You know the Bible. You read the Bible more than anybody else our age. What in the scripture could have possibly gotten you so worked up? What's going on? And he said, well, listen, I was reading the Bible and I found this one verse that was like tucked away in there. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen this before. And I'm really scared about what it means. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, there's a verse in the Bible. And it says plainly, there is no God. Like literally those words are right there in the Bible. And I'm like, wait, what? Are you kidding me? I mean, look, I'm 17. I don't know anything about the Bible. It's kind of this ancient mystical book. And I don't know if anybody really knows all the stuff that's in there. And so I certainly don't. And I'm thinking, what if there's a secret message hidden somewhere in the Bible and nobody has discovered it before my friend on this random Wednesday night in Wise County, Texas, has he like just uncovered the secret that's gonna end the church forever? So he hands me the Bible and I look at it and sure enough, plain as day, he's underlined the sentence. I underlined it in my Bible this morning for you to see on screen here. There is no God. In that moment, you guys, I had a mini panic attack. My world was rocked. I look over and I see my youth pastor, a guy who I love. And I'm like, oh, can you imagine what's gonna happen when he finds out it's all a lie? How is he gonna handle this? Oh, poor Rick. And then I look this way and I see all of these teenagers and they're smiling and laughing and hanging out with their friends, not a care in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, the wool is about to be pulled from their eyes. They're suddenly gonna learn that it's all been for nothing. So I turn my attention back to the Bible. And then I notice something kind of funny. The verse that he underlined, those words are definitely in the Bible, but it turns out that that sentence is, the, is a part of a larger verse. And when I read the larger verse, I realized my friend had just pranked me, okay? Because the verse that he had shown me or the portion of the verse was Psalm chapter number 14, verse one. And if you read the entirety of that verse, it says, only fools say in their heart, there is no God. 
Okay, so when you take into account like the whole verse, that's a totally different meaning, isn't it? Rather than a verse that says, guess what? There is no God, but don't tell anybody, okay? It's a verse that says, of course there's a God. Everybody knows deep down inside that there is a creator. By the way, I gotta tell you, I really appreciate this prank. This was a solid joke at my expense. I can appreciate it because A, it actually fooled me, and B, it taught me something about the Bible. It's so wholesome. Like at this point in my life, I was used to pranks where like you shave off somebody's eyebrow when they pass out on the couch from too much peach schnapps. You with me? That's the kind of prank that I was used to as a teenager. So for this, I was like, oh, you guys are too much, man. That's actually pretty solid. But we do this with the Bible, don't we? We take out little words, sentences, verses. We cut them out from the surrounding passage and the larger narrative of the scripture. We hold these sentences up and we kind of make them say whatever we want them to say. Guess what? Christians do it. Atheists do it. But this is another example of how not to read the Bible. That's the title of our series. And each week through this series, we've been discussing the ways in which believers and non-believers wrongly approach the scripture and how it leads to all sorts of confusion. Everybody's like, oh, the Bible, I could never make sense out of it. Yes, you can if you know how to read it and to approach it. So today I wanna give you our bottom line truth. This is the one thing I want you to walk out of here remembering this morning. I wanna give it to you on the front end and I wanna spend the rest of our message hoping to convince you of it. So here you go. The Bible is a unified story, not a collection of random verses. The Bible is a unified story from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation. It is a unified story and not a collection of random verses. So when we read the Bible, I don't want us to think of verses, plural. I want us to think of story, singular. There is one story that's told throughout the entire Bible. It is not a collection of random verses to pluck out the ones that you like and cut out the ones that you don't like. So uh, next week, we're gonna talk a little bit more about this unified story idea, how the Bible is a story about Jesus, not about me, and cover to cover, the whole story is about Christ. But today, what I wanna do is I wanna focus on what goes wrong when we just pluck individual verses out. When we take proof texts as Christians or non-believers, when they take a verse and they use it to prove how evil God is and all those things, when we pluck out individual verses and we ignore all the surrounding information that's available to us, what can go wrong when we uh, approach the Bible that way? So let me introduce you to one of the most important words in Bible study. The word is context, context. One of the most important words in the entire like study of scripture is context. Now, context is simply the circumstances in which something is said. That's all it means. It's the surrounding information that helps us to understand the meaning of what somebody is communicating. We know this happens all the time in our world. We hear people say, oh, they took my words out of context, right? And what that means is they might've highlighted a small thing that you said, but it ignored the bigger meaning that you were trying to communicate. So if you take this one statement in isolation, it sounds like you're saying one thing, but if you look at it in context, it might be that you're communicating the exact opposite. Context is the surrounding information that helps you to understand what's being communicated. And we do the same thing to the scripture. We ignore the context, we clip out one word or one sentence or one small passage, and we hold it up. And sometimes we can try to make it say something that it doesn't actually say. 
So when we're having a conversation and we're looking at like contextual clues, right? When you have a conversation, when you're talking verbally with somebody, you realize that you're not only listening to their words, but you're actually taking in a whole bunch of other information as well, some clues as to what they mean. So you might listen to their tone of voice. The way that something is said will let you know if it's just told informationally, if it's said in anger, if it's supposed to be a joke, it can communicate a lot. You also look at somebody's body language. How are they standing? How are they gesturing? Which fingers are they holding up? It will tell you a whole lot about what it is that they mean to communicate. When you're watching a movie, you're taking in all of these different cues that are going on. One of my favorites is background music. I'm one of those people that really gets hung up on the soundtrack in a movie because the soundtrack communicates so much about what's happening. If the music that is suddenly coming on screen is scary and ominous, then you know the killer's about to show up. But if it's a light jingle, then you know that you're supposed to laugh. So when we are um, having conversations, when we're out and about interacting with other people, we are always taking all of these contextual clues into account so that we have a better understanding of what it is that we're supposed to hear and understand, all right? The same is true for the Bible. We have to consider some contextual clues when we read passages from the scripture, particularly the weird and difficult ones, so that they make sense to us and we understand what they are supposed to say and not what we think they might be saying, because those are not always the same thing. So when we read the Bible, you guys, there are three types of context that we're going to look at, three types of things or surrounding information that we want to consider. We look at the immediate context we look at the cultural context, and then we look at the gospel context. Immediate cultural and gospel, these words are like, I made them up. There are other Bible study methods that use different words. That's not really important. We look at the immediate, the cultural, and the gospel. And if you consider these, con- these contextual clues, these different types of context, it can help you to make sense out of some weird passages. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at some weird passages together, and then I want to show you how this contextual clues, these, infer- these pieces of information, can help you to sort out what the scripture says. So let's start with immediate immediate context, all right? When we say immediate context, what we mean is you should never, ever read a single verse in isolation. Don't do it. Don't read a single verse in isolation. Don't build doctrine on a single verse. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll have people that come up to me sometimes and they're like, hey, Dan, here's what I believe. And they'll come out with something that is like way out in left field. I'm like, bro, that ain't orthodox at all. How did you come up with that? And they'll quote one half of one verse from the New Testament. And they built this entire belief system or doctrine around this one little thing. We shouldn't do that. We should always read the verses that come before and the verses that come after, because that is a contextual clue that will help us to make sense. So to illustrate this, let's talk about Steph Curry for just a moment. You know who Steph is? Any fans of Steph? Yeah, a few people for sure. All right, let's put him here on the screen. I'm going to invite Steph on stage here for just a moment. Steph is an NBA superstar. He plays for the uh, Golden State Warriors. He is widely regarded as one of the best shooters in NBA history. He has made more three-pointers than any other player ever has, and he owns a whole bunch of other records and titles and stuff like that as well. Now, another reason that Steph Curry is very famous is that for every single game he plays, he writes a Bible verse on his shoe. Philippians chapter number four, verse 13. That passage says, it's here on the screen, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
That verse is on his shoe every single week. Now, you can imagine that lots of uh, journalists and sports fans and stuff who particularly are not Bible people, they're like, Why, what is that? Why would you write a Bible verse on your shoe? What's the meaning behind all of that? And so in his interviews, Steph will often talk about how he's a Christian. He'll talk about his faith. And by the way, it seems very sincere. I'm gonna give him a little bit of a hard time here for just a moment, but he's very sincere in his faith. I don't doubt that sincerity or anything like that. Okay, so anyway, um, he'll talk about his faith and he'll say, the reason that I have this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, uh, Philippians 4.13, written on my shoe is because every night it just makes me wanna go out and play like a champion. You know, it just gives me the encouragement that I can go out there. I can do the double crossover, the fade away three, and I'm gonna make the shot. I just believe it because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, he's not the only one who likes this verse a whole lot. I know some Christian business people who quote Philippians 4.13 every single morning before they rise and grind, you know? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Six-figure income? Yes, I can through Jesus, right? I know parents, Christian parents, and when they're at their wit's end, their kid has gotten on their last nerve. They're like, whoo, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, all right? So this is a very famous, well-known, well-loved verse among believers. And if we take it just immediately, just rip it from its context and we read all in isolation, then this verse could be used to mean that through Jesus, you can become a champion. Or through Jesus, you can accomplish every single dream that's in your heart. But if we read Philippians 4.13 in context, that is we read the verses that come before and we read the verses that come after, we find out that it's got a little bit of a different flavor to it, okay? So let's talk about the, the immediate context of, the, of Philippians 4.13. So if we were to go back to chapter number one, I don't have this on the screen, but that's okay. When we go back to chapter number one, we find out that this was written by an apostle named Paul and he's writing to the church that uh, exists in the ancient city of Philippi. So he's writing to them and we find out in, in verse number seven of chapter one that Paul has been imprisoned. He is writing this letter from jail because he was preaching about Jesus and that was illegal in his time. So Paul is in jail. Things are not going really well for him. And he writes a letter to the Philippian church. And when we get to chapter number four, if we read the larger context of this very lovely verse that all Christians love quoting, we, we see that Paul actually says this. Let's put it right here on the screen together. We'll read it. He says, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. Philippian church, thank you for writing and asking how I'm doing. Thank you for sending me gifts. He says, I am so thankful that you're concerned about me. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me before. Not that I was ever in need, for Paul says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing. Hello, some of you guys are like, oh, Paul and I can relate. And I know how to live with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty in my bank account or little at all. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Ah, so in context, this has a different meaning. See, out of context, this is a verse in which Jesus becomes a tool to accomplish your dreams. It's like, oh, through Jesus, I can do anything I wanna do. But in context, 
This is actually a verse that is teaching us to surrender to God's plan for our life. That it will not always be championships and well-behaved children and six-figure incomes. The verse is actually saying when you get cut from the team, when you have to close the business that you've been dreaming about for years, when your child becomes a prodigal, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, look, I'm, I'm not saying that like Steph is wrong or you're wrong, you know, for quoting. I mean, look, there is a positive side to every bit. But listen, I don't ever want us to use this verse to validate our own plans and dreams. I want us to use this verse to do what it was originally intended to do in context. And that is to remind us that we are not in control ultimately, but there is someone who is. So we want to look at the surrounding verses because that will influence the way that we read, interpret, and apply the scriptures. We get the same sort of clarity when we consider cultural context. And cultural context is basically considering what was going on in the world or the life of the author whenever they wrote. What was going on that led the author to write what it is that they are writing, okay? Uh, cultural context is super important. There's a great example that Bible critics often bring out. They often will highlight uh, Psalm chapter number 137, verse 9, and we're going to read it. I want you to prepare yourself. It's tough reading first thing in the morning on Sunday. <laughs> this verse is actually in the Bible. Psalm 137, verse 9 says this, happy is the one who takes your babies, O Babylon, smashes them against the rocks. Yeah. I can almost guarantee you, you have not heard a preacher teach on this on Sunday morning before. That is an ugly verse. Ugly. You want to know where this verse most often comes out? And fairly so in some ways. It comes out in the abortion debate. You know, so like pro-choice people will say, how can you be pro-life when your very own holy book talks about killing babies? Come on. You're not consistent. All right. So just taking an isolation, this verse makes me want to close the Bible and never read it again. It makes me want to walk away. It makes me question how good God is. Like this is an ugly, ugly verse. But when we understand the cultural context, it does help us to understand what this verse is and also what it is not. See, Psalm 137 was written as a personal diary. We don't know who the author is. There are some parts of the scripture where the author identifies themselves, and sometimes nobody tells us who it is at all. This could have been a man, could have been a woman. We have no idea. What we do know is that this particular uh, journal entry was written soon after the Jewish nation had been invaded by the country of Babylon. The neighboring nation of Babylon had come in. They had taken over. And this person is writing in lament over what's gone on. When Babylon invaded Israel, I want you to understand there were only three possible outcomes for every single Israelite. You would either be raped, enslaved, or murdered. That's it. Nobody escaped. It's hard for us in very safe Canada where we don't ever have to deal with wars like that. Nobody's invaded our country. Nobody's killing off our families. It's very hard for us to understand the depth of emotion that this person must have been feeling in that moment. And so in grief, honestly, in rage and despair over what they had experienced, they gave vent 
to the lowest notes of human emotion. They explained how they really felt in their heart. And from the safety of 2022 Canada, it's easy to be critical. But can I tell you, if you were in their context, you might have those same thoughts and feelings. You might say the same sorts of things. So if we keep it in the cultural context, the historical context, we start to understand that this didn't occur in isolation. This was like literally somebody lamenting the worst day of their life, writing down the worst feelings that they've ever had. Now, before we move on, I need to give you a Bible principle. And I keep saying like, this is the most important Bible principle you're ever going to hear. I do that every week. I understand. This one actually is. So every other time, Every other time I say it in the future, I'm lying. This is it. Just because the Bible records it does not mean that God endorses it. Just because the Bible tells us something happened, that does not mean that God is saying, this is what should have happened, or this is what should always happen. There are so many things in the Bible in which the authors describe what somebody said or what they thought or what they did. But that's not the same as saying God prescribed that they should say and do and feel those ways or that any of us should do that either, all right? The Bible very often gives us the good, the bad, and the ugly in people's lives. It's one of the reasons that I trust it. If this were all made up, then all of these bad parts, you know, the disciples who were too stupid to believe Jesus, they just didn't get it. They didn't trust him. The Old Testament heroes who did awful things, who thought awful things, who wrote awful things. If this was all made up, guess what? We would have cut all of that out a long time ago. But it's included because it's true. Because the Bible is telling you what people actually said and did. It gives us a real picture of humanity. I've had those thoughts. You've had those thoughts. And the Bible is real with it. But that is not the same as God saying, I am so glad that the psalmist wanted to smash babies in 137. God didn't command the Israelites to kill those kids. He didn't command any of that stuff. Now, there are places God asked people to do things that to our modern standards seem pretty barbaric. But in this case, and actually in the vast majority as well, the Bible is simply recording what happens. And that does not mean that God is endorsing what happens. So you've got friends, you've got coworkers, and they're like, did you know the Bible says that the ancient Israelites did this? Or that there was a, uh, somebody in the name of Jesus who went and did that in the Middle Ages. Cool. Yeah, I'm sure they did. That doesn't mean that God looked down and he's like, wow, I'm so pleased with you guys right now. No, God was probably as furious as you are. Just because the Bible records it doesn't mean that God endorses it. When we consider the context in which things are written, we understand that often the truth about situations is reported, but it's left to us to understand the meaning behind it and how we should respond to it. So we've got immediate context, we've got cultural context, and then finally, we should consider the gospel context, the gospel context. When I say gospel context, what I mean is anytime we read a, a verse, any verse or any passage, but particularly the hard and confusing ones, we want to ask, how does this fit into the larger story of redemption that's being told. Again, we'll go into a deep dive on this next week. The entire Bible is a story about Jesus and God's plan to redeem the world, to save us all through him. 
And so if that's the case, every single verse that we read, we want to say, okay, how does this fit in? And next week, I promise you, you're going to want to be here because we've got some really cool ways that this plays out as we read the Bible. But let me give you a quick example today, okay? Uh, you're not going to like this one, but that's okay. I think I'll make a standalone message on this at some point, but that's okay. For today, we'll just kind of quickly uh, walk through it. First John 4.8, one of the most famous and widely quoted verses in the entire Bible. You may know it offhand. Anybody, you're like, oh, I know where he's going with this one. Maybe a couple of you. First John 4.8 says famously, God is love. God is is love. Man, I like that verse. I don't like the baby smashing verses, but I really like 1 John 4, 8. That is a nice verse. I don't mind quoting that to people in a coffee shop. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, God is love. Now, here's the problem. There are only three words in this passage, and two of them, you might even argue three, are incredibly loaded. They're words that carry all sorts of baggage and pre-existing beliefs and connotations and things like that. Now, if we take God is love out of context, out of the literal uh, immediate context, out of cultural context, and then certainly out of the gospel context, we can start to read into God is love, particularly that last word love. We can start to read into it our concepts of what love is. The concepts that we've picked up from the culture around us, from media, from wherever, right? When we pluck it out, we say, oh, love. I know what love is. Love is romance, baby. Or love is an emotion. It's that feeling that I had in the first couple years of marriage. I remember that. Not me. I'm just saying, like, you know, we, this is the way our culture can often talk. I, I love you. Uh, this is the way. I don't know if that, I don't know if that joke's going to work. Um, Love is an unqualified acceptance of whatever somebody wants to say or do. If you love somebody, you'll let them be them, right? Okay, I told you you're not gonna like this, this example. Um, when we just rip this verse out and we say God is love, then we can then define love however we wanna define love. The problem is when we keep this verse in the proper context, we find out that love is defined by the one who created it. That love from a scriptural context, from a scriptural context, is always a sacrificial action that increases unity between God and people. Love is always an action that requires sacrifice on someone's part that brings about greater unity among people and God. So when we allow this scripture to remain in context, we find out that the word love is defined in the scripture. And so what we want to say is, if we're reading 1 John 4, 8, and we want to understand what the Bible says when God is love, then we're going to go back and we're going to cross-reference. We're going to look at other passages in which the scripture talks about love. Greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is, and all the other stuff that I can't remember from 1 Corinthians 13. I quote that verse, I quote that passage every single marriage ceremony I do. You think I'd have it memorized by now. The point is, God is love. Now, if we're not careful, we can define love according to 
21st century standards. But we want to define it properly in terms of what God reveals about love. And that's what the, the gospel context helps us to do. So you got these three types of context that you want to consider when you're reading the scripture. And they really will help you make sense out of the Bible. What's the immediate context? What do the verses before and after say? What's the cultural context? What is it that was going on at the time that led the author to write these things? And then lastly, you want to consider this gospel context, this unified story that the Bible is telling. In the end, context provides clarity. Context provides clarity. You cannot make clear, good sense out of the scripture unless you are taking it in proper context. You can't make the Bible say what you want it to say. It says what it says. There are parts of the Bible that I don't like. But I'm not going to twist and change those just because I don't like them. Instead, I'm going to let the Bible be the Bible. I'm going to approach it. I'm going to wrestle with it. I'm going to study and research. I'm going to do everything I can because what I find is that the more I engage with it, the better it is for my soul. Like it is so helpful to me that the scriptures uh, are this deep. It's good that the Bible's confusing. It is. Because if it were simple, it wouldn't deserve credibility. If it were just straightforward like a children's book, nobody would take it seriously. The fact that it's rich, the fact that it's nuanced, means that it really does have the depth that you need to see you through all of life's ups and downs. The context gives you the clarity. By the way, uh, this is just a quick aside. Did you guys know? that Bible chapters and verses didn't even exist for 1,500 years? Like when, when the Apostle Paul was writing the book of Philippians, he wasn't like, chapter one, verse one. No, it was just a letter. And then like in the 16th century, somebody was like, you know, it might be helpful if we kind of broke it up into smaller chunks and we referenced verses. That way it's not like, Turn in your Bibles to Psalms where it says, Lord, I love thy word. And you just got to know where that's at in those things. You, you with me? So like Bible verses are made up anyway. If for 1,500 years, for 80% of the time that we've had the scripture going all the way back to the start of the Old Testament, people didn't have verses and chapters to reference. You would read large sections of the Bible all at once and that helped you to see the context. But because we just pluck verses out, sometimes we miss out on very important things. Okay, let's wrap it up. Why are we spending so much time talking about this? Again, if this is your first time with us, you just started coming to Connect Church in January, welcome, I'm glad you're here. This series is somewhat different than what we do, although we sprinkle these series in quite often. This is a teaching series, not necessarily a preaching series. I want you to leave knowing more about the scripture, but I want you to leave falling in love with God's Bible. Why though are we spending so much time? Why does this feel like school? <laughs> I know it does. Why? I don't just wanna fill your head. I want to fill your heart. The problem is too many Christians only allow themselves to get spiritually filled up during the 45 minutes to an hour that they're on church, that they're at church on Sunday. Can I tell you that is not healthy and that is not sustainable. If you were to eat on Sunday mornings and that's it for the whole week, do you know what would happen? you would die. Like eventually you would wither up and die. That one meal over a long enough period would not be enough to sustain you physically. And if this is the only spiritual nourishment that you get, 
then you will die spiritually. I hate to be dramatic, but I've been around long enough to see it time and time again. So you don't come to church so that I can teach you the Bible. You come to church so that I can teach you how to read the Bible. Give a man a fish, you'll feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime. Teach a congregation a Bible verse and they'll be spiritually fed for a week. Teach a congregation to read Bible verses properly and they will be spiritually fed for their entire lives. Come on now, I, I'm just gonna be real for a moment. All right, I'm getting hyped up, but it needs to be said. I don't often get emails and messages, I really don't, in which people say, Pastor Dan, I, I love Connect, but I'm just not getting fed here. I'm just, I, that doesn't happen too often, but it does happen, okay? You know what I, I don't say this, I never reply this way, but you know what I think to myself when somebody says, I'm just not getting fed at church. Do you know who needs somebody to feed them? Babies, children. Children need mom and dad to prepare food and here comes the airplane and put it in their mouth. When grown folk are hungry, they get up and go make a sandwich. And there are some of you and you're spiritually hungry, but you're asking me to feed you week in and week out. And it's not enough. It doesn't matter if I'm the best preacher on the planet. I don't get the opportunity to teach you enough to feed your soul the way it needs to be fed. So what that means is it is time to grow up a little bit. It is time for you to start reading the scripture, to start praying on your own, to start owning your faith. Why? Because babies can't change the world. Babies are helpless. They have to have somebody do everything for them. God has called his church to leave an indelible mark on the world around it. He's called us to be an army, not an army of babies, but an army of mature followers of Jesus who know the word, who know how to apply it, and who know how to live it every single day. Now listen, this is not a problem that is unique to Connect Church. Let me show you a passage from Hebrews chapter number five, and I want you to just ask yourself, this doesn't ring true 2,000-ish years after it was written. A pastor is writing to a bunch of Hebrew Christians. That's why we call it the book of Hebrews. And he says, oh, there is so much more we would like to say about these doctrines, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull, don't seem to be interested. Those are his words, not mine. I'm not calling you guys spiritually dull. I'm just saying, you ask if the Holy Spirit is giving you any info here. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. Here's the metaphor. You're like babies who need milk. You can't eat solid food. Someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature and who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Man, I need to preach a whole message on this passage because it's real good. It says that you have the skill through training to be able to rightly read the word. Some of you guys think, oh, it's just a skill I wasn't born with. No, it's a skill that no one is born with. 
everybody through training learns how to read the scripture and then go live in the ways of Jesus. If I can do it, this poor little trailer park kid from Texas who had no religious training whatsoever, I wandered into a youth group and I thought there was no God. If I can learn it, you can learn it. The only difference between me and you is that one day I decided that I was going to own my faith. That is the only difference. And so I am lovingly challenging Connect Church to start to own your own faith. Do not rely on your pastors or your Connect Group leaders to feed you and expect that that's going to be enough. It will not be. So if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a copy of the scripture, I want to give you one for free. All you have to do is go out to the guest center today before you leave and say, Pastor Dan said I could have one of those Bibles. And I will put in your hand a very easy to read Bible that is designed for people who are new to scripture reading. It'll help you. And then I'm gonna challenge you to get on board with our Bible reading challenge. Every day we are reading one chapter from the book of Mark. Many of you have been doing it for several weeks, like since the start of January. And you may know that by Tuesday, we're done. Some of you have read an entire book from the Bible, maybe for the very first time. So I'm gonna challenge you, start reading one chapter. You can read in the book of Mark, or you can do what I'm gonna do and what everybody who's on our Bible reading plan is gonna do. We're gonna read the book of Ephesians next. So you're gonna finish Mark 16 on Tuesday. Then we go on Wednesday, we're gonna read Ephesians chapter one, then two, then three, four. And you know what? It's gonna work out so perfectly. By January 31st, we will have finished the book of Ephesians because it's really short. In one month, you will have read two Bible books. That's more than some of you guys have read in the last decade, all right? So get on board with reading the scriptures every single day. Can I say to you, please don't, misunderstand my tone, my meaning. Um, take the contextual clues that I've given you today. I'm not here to beat you up, but sometimes we need to be reminded that we got to get out of the seat. We got to start taking steps, okay? And this might be one of those moments. And so what I say, I say lovingly because I care about you, your relationship with God, and the spiritual health of our church. <music>